Hello again, everyone. You are listening to the podcast, The Leaves of a Victim Nevermore with Stephen Wilson. I am Stephen Wilson. I am a drug user, and I am a adult survivor of childhood sex abuse. This podcast is a form of therapy. It is meant for people that identify as victims of addiction or abuse of any kind. In maintaining the structure that I have started, this episode, uh, the reading is going to be taken from the book, The End of Education by Neil Postman. Now, I know this book is not fiction, and that's okay. I've also, uh, I've done some reading from Goffman as well. But the reason that I'm going to bring in Postman is because it really was the uh, inspiration for my own doctoral thesis. As I went into coming up with a, an entirely new educational paradigm, and I thought that it was relevant for today's topic. Again, this is Neil Postman, The End of Education, Part One, The Necessity of Gods. In considering how to conduct the schooling of our young, adults have two problems to solve. One is an engineering problem, the other a metaphysical one. The engineering problem as all such problems are, is essentially technical. It is the problem of the means by which the young will become learned. It addresses the issues of where and when things will be done, and of course, how learning is supposed to occur. The problem is not a simple one, and any self-respecting book on schooling must offer some solutions to it. But it is important to keep in mind that the engineering of learning is very often puffed up, assigned an importance it does not deserve. As an old saying goes, there are one and twenty ways to sing tribal lays, and all of them are correct. So it is with learning. There is no one who can say that this or that is the best way to know things, to feel things, to see things, to remember things, to apply things, to connect things, and that no other will do as well. In fact, to make such a claim is to trivialize learning, to reduce it to a mechanical skill. Of course, there are many learnings that are little else but a mechanical skill, as in such cases there will be a best way. But to become a different person because of something you have learned, to appropriate an insight, a concept, a vision, so that your world is altered, that is a different matter. For that to happen, you need a reason. And this is the metaphysical problem I speak of. A reason, as I use the word here, is different from a motivation. Within the context of schooling, motivation refers to a temporary psychic event in which curiosity is aroused and attention is focused. I do not mean to disparage it, but, not, but it must not be confused with the reason for being in a classroom, for listening to a teacher, for taking an examination, for doing homework, 
for putting up with school even if you are not motivated. This kind of reason is somewhat abstract, not always present in one's consciousness, not at all easy to describe. And yet for all that, without it, schooling does not work. For school to make sense, the young, their parents, and their teachers must have a god to serve, or even better, several gods. If they have none, school is pointless. Nietzsche's famous aphorism is relevant here. He who has a why to live can bear with almost any how. This applies as much to learning as to living. To put it simply, there is no surer way to bring an end to schooling than for it to have no end. By a God to serve, I do not necessarily mean the God who supposed to have created the world and whose moral injunctions as presented in sacred texts have given countless people a reason for living and more to the point, a reason for learning. In the Western world, beginning in the 13th century, and for 500 years afterward, that God was sufficient justification for the founding of institutions of learning, from grammar schools where children were taught to read the Bible, to great universities where men were trained to be ministers of God. Even today, there are some schools in the West and most in the Islamic world whose central purpose is to serve and celebrate the glory of God. Wherever this is the case, there is no school problem and certainly no school crisis. There may be some disputes over what subjects best promote piety, obedience, and faith. There may be students who are skeptical, even teachers who are non-believers. But at the core of such schools, there is a transcendent spiritual idea that gives purpose and clarity to learning. Even the skeptics and non-believers know why they are there, what they are supposed to be learning, and why they are resistant to it. Some also know why they should leave. A few years ago, I had a sad conversation with a brilliant and popular philosophy professor at Principia College in Elza, Illinois. Principia was, and as far as I know, still is, the only institution of higher learning of the Christian Science Church. He told me that his years at Principia had been the happiest he had known, but he had taken a job at a secular university because he no longer believed in the tenets of Christian science. The courses he taught, I should say, did not include discussions of, let alone instruction in, those tenets. No one other than himself need ever have known of his disaffection. But he no longer believed in the purpose of the institution and every course, irrespective of its content, was infused with a spirit of a narrative he could not accept. So he left. I have always hoped that this forlorn professor eventually found another God to serve, another narrative to give meaning to his teaching. Once again, that was The End of Education by Neil Postman. As with most things here, 
This episode is going to be based on things taking place in therapy. I am in group therapy for adult survivors of childhood sex abuse. And there was a discussion after the holiday. People had gone on vacations, people had uh, taken a break. And when we all returned, people started talking about their connective tissue to their respective families. Because most of them, at some level, went back to where they came. And because of the fact that I spent so much time researching education paradigms, different methodologies, Postman is never very far away. I know that here in modernity, in academia, Neil Postman is not put into the same canon of Aristotle or Plato, the sophists. But his words mean something to me because I believe that they are timeless. It's not really that I became infatuated with people like Jean Piaget or human development. But in dealing with education, you have to have a reason. Postman, as usual, he nails it. And you have to begin somewhere. So in building a foundation of therapy, uh, trying to find a way to live this life, it doesn't take very long for you to go into Greek philosophy and deal with many of the stories that you find. And for me, there is a story that I believe is fitting for this podcast episode. The Greek story of Theseus and the Minotaur. Now, to give you some background here, um, there was a king of Crete, King Minos. Um, he was waging war against the Athenian people, and there was a labyrinth, and there was a minotaur. And on the annual, seven boys and seven girls were sacrificed to said minotaur, and everybody that had ever gone into the labyrinth, they were never seen again. Because it isn't just the minotaur, it is the labyrinth itself. Well, Theseus, as the story goes, was, took it upon himself to accept King Minos and the challenge to go into the labyrinth, solve the puzzle of the labyrinth, and kill the Minotaur. Now, to add intrigue, as with all Greek stories do, there needs to be some sense of loss or tragedy and we bring in the daughter of King Minos, Aradne. Aradne fell in love with Theseus. She did not want to see him get hurt. She wanted to see him successful, and in doing so, pretty much wrote the end of her father. She gave Theseus a ball of string. Before he entered the labyrinth, he tied it off, and he, he took the ball of string with him as he entered the labyrinth. 
And as the story goes, Theseus was able to kill the Minotaur. He solved the problem or the puzzle of the labyrinth by retracing his steps with the, with the, with the ball of string that he had. The way that he came in is the way that he went out. Not because of memory, but because of the string, the cord given to him by Radney. Now, Greek tragedy is always filled with lessons. I suppose in a way, the metaphor is always going to be used. But the labyrinth is always something that I used as a means of trying to explain the human mind, human development. Because when you build a construct for education, if you build any form of wall or door or window, it is going to seem to some of the children as to be a casket, a grave. There's no way out. They go in and that's where they remain, never to be seen again. And the issue here, the reason I bring it up, is that in Theseus, we have someone that had the courage to do things that others did not, but he still needed help. And with the human, we all need training. It doesn't matter how gifted you are, it doesn't matter what genetics given you, you still have got to deal with the outside world. You have to deal with the human. And for most of us, we have to survive the company we keep. The Minotaur could be a metaphor as a ball of string, a Randy's love, the cruelty of King Minos, the ambition, the audacity, the ego of Theseus. The story is incomplete until you are able to get hold of it in a context that can make sense to you, the reader, and for you, the listener. But when we were in group, and the guys kept talking about some of the old habits that the family had, how do you conduct yourself when people know? Yeah, it's not so easy. When people know that you've been abused, especially if you were raped as a child, Immediately, you're going to find somebody that is going to cry or throw you a pity party. But just as easy, you're going to find people that say, I don't really believe you. Children's imagination will do many things, and you didn't do anything while this was happening, so you're a little bit sketchy. That is the same language game that we have found in sociological studies done on women adult women that have been raped. You can also find it in some of the case studies currently happening in academia, in college campuses in the United States of America, and to the thing called date rape. And these things are all relevant because, again, we find ourselves talking about consent. How do you conduct yourself 
when you didn't choose to be born? How do you behave when you find yourself in a game grid not of your choosing? You did not give your consent. So when we talk about adaptation, either you're in or you're out. It is binary. If you don't adapt, you're done. Your narrative is going to be a short story rather than a volume or a novel or a long-winded poem, something noble, the complete opposite of a tragedy. And in listening to the guys around the group, the family members always seem to coddle, although it feels strange doing it to an adult Every one of them sounded off about the different forms of kid glove that they have dealt with every time that they have some kind of social gathering. We all have to deal with it, the way that people conduct themselves to us. What can you say? Is it proper? Is it improper? Don't want to be rude. Don't want to step on anybody's toes. I can't imagine what it would be like for somebody to make a joke about being raped about being abused, but it does happen. But how do you deal with it? What is your reason for trying to learn this thing called life? It doesn't have to be noble, it doesn't have to be profound. It doesn't have to be spoken Latin for it to carry or a British accent in order for it to survive the day. It can be here with us right now. Why do you learn? You have to learn to be a victim. You have to learn to gauge what can be said and what can be done before you've gone too far. Do you throw yourself a pity party? Do you go into a bottle of whiskey? Do you go into cocaine? How many people do you take with you? You have become the proverbial Titanic. Your family is the iceberg. Being a victim of abuse becomes, well, it's no longer the, the focal point that it used to be. I understand now more than ever that I cannot keep blaming the teacher for what he did to me and for the way that I have conducted myself at the adult table. I know that for myself, I am dangerous. I am a train wreck. I would like to believe that I can be trusted, but I can't. I know that when I go to group, that I'm going to hear the angles of other men and what they've done, just like this past week. Everybody talking about what they did and how things went if they decided to get drunk or if they cried or if there was a fight. 
But the thing is, everybody seems to keep, keep going back. They keep wanting to find their place. And I don't think that you can reinvent the wheel regardless of your, your causation. What do you want most? I don't think that that matters now. Because we're no longer children, we're no longer victims. And yet, when we find ourselves going back to that construct, that's exactly what happens. When people know, do they help you forget? Or do they make it worse? Do they give you reason enough to say, I'm not going to hang out with you guys anymore? Because I don't feel like myself. I feel like a pilgrim. I feel like an alien. We have the same last name. But I am a stranger here. Because you know about something that you shouldn't have. Something that shouldn't have happened, but it did. And you keep asking me how I feel today. And that makes it worse. Now that my position in the group is predominantly set in stone, I try not to toke the fire, so to speak. I do not go into the group thinking that I should become some kind of therapist for them. I do not dictate terms. The thing between us is a unreadable contract. We talk about things that nobody can fundamentally understand. The words translate, but the feelings, the actions don't. Why does it linger? Why are we so haunted? You see, it is a task. You have to learn. But why? You have to, you have to reinvent yourself. And when you do that, part of you has to die. The thing that you were before, it can't linger, it can't stay. That's not the way it works. You shed skin. Well, you don't collect that and keep it in your pocket, thinking that one day it will have some kind of utility. Well, then, if that were the case, then there would have been no reason for you to shed the skin in the first place. There would have been no reason for you to go through the change. There would have been no reason for you to adapt. If you wanted to stay who you were, then you could have stayed. You wouldn't have made it. You wouldn't have survived. But you would have remained. And I, know, I don't know if that's worth something. Because in hearing them, it was the same thing that we talked about at Christmas. Same thing about Thanksgiving. It is difficult, it is awkward, 
for you to be in a room of people celebrating life when there is part of you that wants to cry. And the tears that you manufacture, they are for no one but yourself. How can I make myself better? How can I help myself? I really wish I had the answer. I do. But I could not say it. And even if I had it, I don't know if I would share it. I'm not sure how that would make me feel. Some days are better than others. And for the moment, I am glad that I'm here. But that might change tomorrow. Because I might change. And the thing that I change into, it might be a little bit weaker than the one I am now. Or maybe it'll be stronger. Maybe it will be smarter. Or maybe it'll... Maybe it will reconcile to be a victim. What is your reason for learning? It's a hell of a question. By all means, take it on. Well, that's all I have. I hope you're enjoying your summer. I hope you're having a good time. Live. May you be a blessing, and may you find serenity.